Why Read Anarchy, State, and Utopia, Part 2. Today on The Curious Task, I continue my conversation with Eric Mack. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking again with Eric Mack. Eric is a professor of philosophy at Tulane University, where he is also a faculty member of the Murphy Institute of Political Economy. A lot of his writings focus on the moral foundations of rights, the justification of property rights, historical understandings of economic justice, and the scope of legitimate coercion and the extent, if any, of the legitimate state. Eric was actually one of our first guests ever on the podcast, so we suggest you scroll way back into the catalog and check out my previous conversation with him as well. And of course, enjoy this episode too. So Eric, we're here to continue answering the question we kicked off in our last episode together, why read Anarchy, State, and Utopia? And of course, we'll be continuing to answer that question by pushing forward with our 101 introduction to the book and the ideas it lays out, and you'll continue to be our guide. I'll remind the listeners here that this will be a dive right back in where Eric and I left off. So for proper context and continuity, definitely listen to part one first if you haven't already, because we're jumping right back in, as I said, and the rest won't make sense. So, Eric, let's just get right into it. Let's continue traveling through the book together. Recall we were tracing what was going on at a high level in each section. We already covered part one and part two. Part three, titled Utopia, and the cha- one chapter is, of course, titled A Framework for Utopia. So I guess I don't need to ask you what Nozick is setting about in that part there, but let's take some time so you can actually tour us through how he goes about it. Great, sure. Well, one thing to mention to begin with is that uh, there are portions earlier in the book where Nozick is, in effect, saying to folks with a different ideological slant, especially speaking, I think, to his fellow leftist uh, or his leftist fellow academics, uh, and the emphasis in these passages is nothing I say should be threatening to you because under a laissez-faire or libertarian world regime, um, you will be free to form any sort of society you like. (laughs) Uh, The only constraint on uh, what sort of society you can form, there's no constraint on what sort of society you can form, but you have to form it uh, with the voluntary consent of the other members of the society. So if you want to have um, uh, worker ownership of businesses, fine. Uh, if you want to live in a uh, sort of wild, sexually wild community, fine. Uh, nothing that is being said on the part of libertarianism constrains you at all, except that you have to do it with only other voluntary participants. And that's just a very general strategy that Nozick uses throughout the book. Um, I remember discovering myself that uh, this was a totally ineffective strategy <laughs> with um, with very, very determined uh, um, what he calls sort of imperialists uh, uh, about society. So I recall myself being at a conference where uh, there was someone who wanted to have, uh, who thought that the only schools that should be allowed to exist were schools that indoctrinated people in Marxism. And somebody else said, 
No, the only schools that should be allowed to exist are schools that indoctrinate children in sort of conservative Christianity. And I thought, well, I could solve all these problems for these people. I'll just tell them that each of them can have their own schools. (laughs) And both of these people found that totally unacceptable. (laughs) So to now just to into actually the chapter on utopianism per se. So part of it is just the theme I was just mentioning. Uh, in the world that I envision, people would be free to form any sort of community they like, as long as they do it with other people who are willing to live with them in that way. Uh, but the larger theme is um, that we don't know uh, what the ideal community would be. Uh, the only thing we probably know is that there are lots of different ideal communities because people are different. And what would be the ideal community for me is not likely to be the ideal community for you, Alex. Um, And so what we need really is a procedure, a discovery procedure. And uh, so that's a purposely chosen phrase uh, out of Hayek, where he talks about uh, the market, the competitive market being a a discovery procedure. We discover uh, what are the better ways of producing things. We discover what sorts of products consumers really want. So what Nozick is proposing is a discovery procedure for utopia. And the way that procedure works is that people are free to try out communities um, and communities are free to modify themselves so as to attract possible members. Uh, And as long as people are free to move among these communities, and as long as the communities aren't allowed to forcibly suppress their competitors, what should happen over time is that people get an enormous amount of new information about what sort of communities are possible, what sort of communities are stable, what sort of communities will appeal to what particular sorts of individuals. And the thought is that just as people are free to move across um, different uh, producers of consumer goods, So people, if they're free to move across different sorts of communities, will be apt to discover the type of community that is best for them. And the community that is best for them is will be more apt than under any other circumstances to evolve. Um, And so uh, just as there should be a marketplace for goods and just as there should be a marketplace for ideas, there ought to be a marketplace for communities. And what makes a marketplace for communities possible is the same sort of uh, bare bones legal framework that Nozick has in a way been talking about all along, a legal framework that would protect people's property, um, including the property that they um, that they uh, convey, that they own in common with other members of their community, if that's the sort of community that they want, and uh, protect people's speech so people can talk about these communities and protect people's uh, rights to move among those communities. And um, uh, this doesn't have the immediate inspirational force of a particular community that some particular individual believes will make him or her happy, right? It's a more abstract conception of of utopia. And we have to have that because it's not as though people are the same. I mean, there's this very nice passage uh, 
early in that chapter where Nozick lists about uh, 50 different people with sort of interesting, fam famous because of the sort of personalities that they had and the sort of projection of self that they had. And uh, he lists all these and says, can anyone at all believe that for that each of these, there's some community which would be best for each of these people. Right. And there obviously is not right. And uh, um, I can don't know what page that that list is, but at the time it was always a lot of fun to read the list and see how many of these 50 people you knew something about. Right. Unfortunately, now a different list would have to be made up because many of these people were uh, were uh, creatures of the 1970s. Right. Uh, so so that's the basic argument of uh, of and an important claim that Nozick makes is that it's an argument for um, this framework, which he just calls a minimal state. It's not so clear that it's a minimal state rather than a, a world of sort of cooperating protective agencies. Um, but he says, so my argument here for the minimal state is independent of the moral arguments I make earlier in the book, it doesn't depend upon your accepting a particular theory of rights, for, and most importantly, uh, because uh, uh, I'm not now saying that you. the first step in the argument here is there are these rights that have to be respected. It's just if something like those rights are respected, then you're going to get this discovery procedure, which is the closest thing to satisfying people's desire for utopia that we can re ever reasonably have. So, so there's, uh, there's our framework for utopia. Yes, yes, yes. And again, it's, I would say emphasizing this one point, little point I made that uh, he moves very quickly to saying that this framework for utopia is the minimal state, but it, the society that he describes where all this experimentation is going on um, is, uh, it seems much more loose jointed <laughs> than a society with a, a single state that is in any way protecting everything or protecting everything that ought to be protected. Uh, uh, it's the, the state itself is extremely far in the background in right. the story that he tells here. Right. Um, I'll, I'll mention one other connecting sure. thing. If it, uh, so Nozick wrote a little thing, which, which was actually published in Reason Magazine a few years after this, a very interesting little paper. And it was a paper about um, uh, how many people, what percentage of the population would join uh, socialist communities uh, if if people were both free to join and free not to join, and it was a world in which socialist communities were, if any way, if it, if anything, sort of subsidized and officially favored by, and he chose um, kibbutzim in Israel as his example, right? And it was true that these were both economically subsidized, and also it, there was a type of ideolo ideology that was appealing to people that uh, favored these. Um, and this would have been, again, in the late 1970s. And it turned out that at that point, 
something like 6% of the adults <laughs> in Israel chose to live in that sort of community. Uh, and uh, it's probably much lower now, I'm sure. Uh, um, and part of his conclusion was, well, why do people want to force people into the communities that they consider to be ideal? And the answer that's suggested by the Israel story is because they can't get that many people to come willingly, right? And no matter what it is, you're not going to be able to get that many people come willingly. And so there's going to be a strong tendency for utopians uh, uh, not to want to limit the scope of their ambition to the scope of the people who agree with them. Uh, and so there's a strong tendency for people to want to use coercion to uh, to fulfill their utopian aspirations. Right. So. Yeah. And and before I actually move on to some other questions and get further into some of your thoughts yeah. on, on all of this, basically, I actually want to circle back to part one real quick. Uh, mm. I'll restate the, the part because it's some time into the conversation now. So part one, state of nature theory or how to back into a state without really trying. After you gave us your overview of part one a little while ago, <laughs> you then moved on to say you don't think how Nozick actually approaches that discussion in their uh, quote really works. So c- yeah. can you explain some of your, your, your thoughts and your critiques of, of part one and, and some, some of the stuff you yeah. wanted to add there? Yeah. Yeah. So what I, mo- what I had in mind at that moment was, um, People will remember there are sort of two phases for Nozick's argument. First is to say that um, um, in a state of nature, uh, which means simply a world where there weren't already political institutions and legal institutions, maybe, um, he says a dominant protective agency will emerge. And a dominant protective agency means an agency that uh, offers protective services to people. That means both like police protection, but also services like courts and uh, <laughs> institutions for punishment and so on, uh, that, um, that um, there would emerge, be, they might begin with a bunch of competing agencies of this sort, all goodwilled, all having a pretty much conception of what the same conception of what people's rights are, but off each of them as a business offering contracts to people to provide these services. And he points out, as many people have, that um, uh, to avoid conflict, expensive conflict, and to make themselves more attractive to the possible customers, uh, these agencies would have to enter into all sorts of agreements with one another about how to settle disputes when there were disputes between clients of different agencies, right? And in a way, uh, the rule of law develops out of these uh, um, agreements about how different types of disputes will be settled, what sort of courts will be appealed to, and uh, maybe what sort of judges will be hired in what sort of such circumstances. Uh, And... um, uh, this is supposed to get one to this first stage where we have a dominant protective agency, which is not yet a state. And there's a crucial passage in Nozick uh, at that point where he says, oh, people, these different agencies, most of them will enter into these agreements and they'll form a sort of network. Uh, and this will make them more attractive to potential customers. Uh, and then he says, And so there will be a unified federal system among these. Well, he never exactly says what he means, but the suggestion there 
is that there will no longer be significant competition among the members of this network. But he really hasn't said anything that indicates that there wouldn't be ongoing competition. So I don't know anything, for instance, about how insurance companies really work, but I imagine it's something like this. Uh, If two people have an accident, if two people are involved in an accident, they have claims against one another and they're all members of the same, subscribe to the same insurance company, you have a nice, easy way of settling the dispute. Your insurance company is. If they're members of different, if they subscribe to different insurance companies, the dispute resolution is going to be more complicated, but I assume insurance companies have ongoing relationships with one another and ongoing um, um, precedents about how different sorts of cases are going to be settled. Uh, so they don't go to war with one another about this sort of thing. But the fact that they have all those sorts of interconnections and understandings and common rules doesn't mean they're not still competing with one another. Right. <laughs> uh, they are. Uh, and so they're still all should no should stay say somehow within this dominant protective network. There's still all sorts of competition of an economic sort among the particular protective agencies, which are part of the network. And so even if that agency goes on and eliminates certain sorts of outsiders or marginal protective agencies, which is what they have to do, according to Nozick, to become a state, he shouldn't say they become a state because he should have said that within the network, there's still all this competition. Mm. Uh, and so uh, the unity of the dominant agency is something that he kind of verbally slips in. And so, of course, that's there when this association manages to suppress or control the more marginal agencies. Uh, but it shouldn't have been asserted to begin with, right? There should have been this recognition to begin with that uh, this dominant agency, this dominant association is is still an association of competing agencies, right? That simply have reached certain sorts of agreements with one another about how they're going to proceed when there's potential conflict among them. Right. So that's, and there's a connected very connected point. If there's not still that sort of competition among the members of the network, what will restrict how much the now minimal state can charge people for protection? (laughs) Right? Because there's no other, the thing that has to be recognized about Nozick's minimal state, which I remember at first, I for quite a while, I thought this was part of the charm of it, was that it's not like there's a constitution. <clears throat> it's not like there are elections. <laughs> there's, 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 no, there's, there's nothing like a legislator, legislative, legislative process. The, uh, specificate, the articulation of people's rights comes out by agencies saying, this is what we understand people's rights to be. And we're supposed to assume that they say correct things at that point. Uh, 
And other agencies say similar things, but maybe they don't agree completely and they decide on some articulation which is consistent for both. Um, uh, but there's, it's not a state like any state that anyone has ever seen. And it's not just that it's more limited in what it does, <laughs> but it's essentially a business, right? Or it's a consortium of business operations. Um, and if you reach a point where that consortium is a cartel, because it's really unified, um, then even if they, that state never does anything, uh, that violates people's rights, there's no limitation on what it can ask people for um, in payment for the protection of their rights. Now, what might, if they ask for enormous amount, the, the result of that may very well be that new competitors arise, right? And once again, it's clear that we don't have a situation with the state. But if they prevent new competitors from arising, right, then uh, uh, there's no non there's no market process left to control the prices that are charged. Uh, and so presumably what has to happen is if you're not going to have that, you have to start introducing more conventional attempts to limit the power of the state. And now maybe the, 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 the agencies that are a part of the network start saying to people, uh, we, you can be confident that we're not going to charge you too much because there's a constitutional rule that we're going to accept that we can only charge you, you know, We can only make a uh, 10% profit on our, uh, right, on right. our revenues or something like, you know, so, but Nozick doesn't address that at all. Right. And so one worry is, well, Nozick, if you're right, that this really is a unified entity that's going to come about through this process of both uh, there being a dominant agency and that dominant agency now rightly or acceptably, permissibly suppressing the sort of rogue agencies, if you're right that that's going to result in a really unified, minimal state, um, there's this big problem about, well, what is it going to constrain? The anarchist starts out by saying what's really great about this sort of anarcho-capitalism is that each agency that employs force purportedly for the sake of protecting people's rights is in competition with others who also have that aim. If that disappears, and, and the anarchist says that's, um, that's the only way we can really be assured that uh, none of these agencies will become oppressive in one way or another. Uh, and no success. Well, but I can get rid of that competition <laughs> uh, so that we really have a state. But then it looks like he has to say, so I now have the traditional problem of having to describe what the constitution of that state would be and convince people that its constitution will do something like as good a job at constraining this institution as economic competition would do.
And he doesn't do that. Right. Right. Uh, so, and and I think that's very interesting that you took us through that because it seems to me, and of course, correct me if I'm wrong, but in in your mind, that although the book you know presents uh, in many ways, especially towards the end, but overall, like a framework for thinking and and sort of a you know a, a framework and general pointers on libertarianism and the ideal for a minimal state, right. it doesn't seem like you think it's it's fully complete at least that there's a lot still to be explored. Right. Right. And Nozick would, of course. And I think rightly not think that that was a horror, that was a terrible, a damning criticism. Right. Right. I mean, uh, uh, and even at the beginning of the book and later in other books, he's always saying, uh, you know, these are explorations. Uh, uh, it's something it's bad when philosophers think, write a book and they think that they're writing the last word on the topic. Yeah, absolutely. That's a positively bad thing. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's something wrong with books that, uh, you know, a priori, there's something wrong with the book if it tells you I'm about to give you the last word on one of these topics. So uh, 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 I think that fit his personality. Um, um, but I think also he was um, um, he didn't have a lot of patience for working out the details himself. Mm. Uh, so he didn't want to do that. And he never just looking ahead a little bit. he essentially never answered, never wrote anything in response to, uh, to the many critics of the book. Right. Yeah. Uh, I read something about that, that he never, yeah. he never fur- further developed the ideas or anything like that. So I guess if we do wonder, right. uh, and of course he's not with us anymore. So if we do wonder what he would say to those critics, that that's not happening. I guess we sort of have at least his final word on his idea of all, all this. Cause that's right. That's right. That. Yeah. 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 And I think I think that's actually an excellent place, Eric. We're going to take our, a quick break, so we're going to do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Eric Mack today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Scott Scheel, Ben Hobbs, and Amy Willis. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Eric Mack today. We're continuing our conversation on anarchy, state, and utopia. So, Eric... At now at this point, finally, in, in two parts in total, all the total time we spent together, we have toured through part one, two, and three of Anarchy State and Utopia, and I think it was great. I think that is certainly going to leave our listeners with a great high level a discussion uh, of, of what's actually going on in the book, as well as your, your thoughts as we were going along. I want to kind of uh, jump to a couple like a different color commentary sort of questions now about sort of what surrounds the book and, and the lore of the story of of Nozick and, and his release actually because of course uh, it was released in uh, 1974 according to my notes here and I just wanted to ask you because uh, I, I guess you you were around at the time I wanted I want you to tell us what was the reception of the book like when yeah. it came out uh, yeah. is there anything you you, yeah. you want to reflect on as far as how it was interpreted by different groups and thinkers yeah. and philosophy departments yeah. and so on. Yeah. Well, he knows it. I mean, he would have been quite young still then, about 35, I guess. No, no, about 36 or so, uh, 35 or 36. Uh, so he was already sort of uh, widely known as just this incredibly brilliant young guy. 
Uh, and he, you know, his PhD was at Princeton and he taught at um, Rockefeller's, you know, Rockefeller University at that point included all sorts of different disciplines. Now it's, I think, primarily just a medical place. And he went to Harvard uh, and he was known as just this incredibly brilliant guy. Um, and so, and I think he was already, had already been promoted to a full professor at this early age at Harvard, um, uh, mostly on the basis of about four or five uh, very esoteric <laughs> articles, um, but which everyone thought was were brilliant in one way or another. And he's a brilliant conversationalist. Uh, so uh, um, he's already known for that. Uh, and he's known for being a charming guy, so he can't be dismissed because he's nasty or, you know, kicks little kids or anything <laughs> like that. And so he publishes this book, right, which uh, um, was just, which presented the worst, the, the most, dis allegedly the most discredited, uh, horrible, <laughs> uh, uh, political philosophical views that anyone could possibly hold, but maybe that's a little exaggeration. Um, so actually most of the reviews by professional philosophers and political theorists were extremely nasty and uh, uh, extremely distortive. So for instance, uh, one review, and I'm not sure I remember the author's name, but in a prestigious journal, uh, talks for a little while about Nozick saying that these protective agencies would provide police services, right? And then says for the rest of the review, well, Nozick, you see, now is an advocate of the police state, <laughs> right? With all the connotations of, you know, the Gestapo or something, mm -hmm, right? And mm -hmm. that was, or another review uh, said, uh, and this was more intended as more of an insult than some people would take it to be. Uh, the review of this very sophisticated philosophical book by a guy named Brian Barry said, if you like Goldwater, then you'll love this book, right? Okay. This is the, the philosophical review. Right? Uh, there was a couple of other reviews that were, that were much more respectful and basically uh, said, well, unfortunately, we, he raises a lot of questions, which it's not easy to answer. <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, and so he, it was, it won the National Book Award that year. Um, uh, I can tell a quick, nice story about that. Sure. Um, so it won the National Book Award, and Nozick was a vegetarian. He's, he argues for vegetarianism briefly in the book. Um, and uh, so he wore, he had worn for a long time just sneakers uh, because he, because he seemed to have the view that shoes were always made out of leather, which was probably uh, was a false view, right? There were these artificial leather, but he seemed to think that that if he if he if he were to buy a pair of shoes, it would have to be made out of leather, so he shouldn't buy shoes. But he thought it would be insulting to go to the ceremony uh, um, uh, where he got the National Book Award, 
in sneakers. So he said, he told me, he said, so I went out and bought a pair of shoes. I felt kind of bad about it. And I, then I felt bad. I, I didn't tell him because I thought he, he would feel worse. I didn't tell him, well, you could have bought a pair of shoes, right? Made out of synthetic le- leather. But, right. Anyway, but he, he, um, so the book was, um, uh, the view was, this was a tremendously brilliant work, uh, that had to be false. Uh, there was a lot of many, many articles written attacking the book, almost all of them attacking the, uh, the theory of economic justice, uh, not pretty much ignoring most of what was in the uh, earlier parts, the, uh, the, the anarchism versus minimal stay, very little written about the, uh, the interesting third part, uh, because what people really cared about was uh, uh, defending some sort of egalitarian principle of, of economic justice. That was what was crucial. And those who had to be dismissed uh, for his stance on, on economic justice. Uh, um, uh, nevertheless, it, it, um, it gave the book, it, it was, there was an incredible boost of credibility for libertarian type views because of the book. Uh, you couldn't automatically be considered an idiot <laughs> if you held these views, because then you'd have to consider Nozick an idiot, and he clearly wasn't. Um, so it helped it helped uh, other people in philosophy and political theory in that way. Um, and I can add a little personal that I actually spent a year at Harvard as a postdoc, the year right after the book came out, mm. and I spent that year. Basically, every two weeks, I would go talk to Nozick for an afternoon about political philosophy. Amazing experience. We don't have the time to tell all those stories. Um, But I was an example of someone who was helped by this because um, uh, after that year for, I would say, at least three or four years, maybe longer, I would get invitations to speak at some event where I was going to be one of the asked to be one of the three or four main speakers. Um, and all the other people were had, you know, I was just a junior assistant professor of philosophy and, uh, all the other people were much better established in the profession. Mm. And uh, so I went to a lot of these and gave a lot of these talks and, uh, it wasn't until, you know, some later point where I realized, although I never talked to Nozick about it, that the reason I was getting these invitations was that Nozick was getting these invitations. Right. And he would say to people, nah, I don't want to do it, but this is guy back. He's okay. <laughs> so why don't you ask him? So it would, for me, it was a, it was actually a, a good uh, professional boost. Uh, and for a lot of people, it, uh, uh, it allowed them to have to be placed in a sort of category which um, where people wouldn't feel justified in just straightforward, blank, automatic dismissal. Right. Uh, the bad part was that um, um, if someone decided to write an article attacking some libertarian view, it would always be attacking Nozick on that 
whatever that issue was, right? And right. the assumption was that all these other people had nothing to say that wasn't already in Nozick. Right. right. And that right. was that was false and that was that was a bad feature of his uh of his uh prominence. Uh but uh he was a yeah, just to add a little bit, he was a incredibly smart guy. I mean the smartest guy I ever met. Uh and um um uh, and he knew um you know there were five or six or seven major sort of academic fields where he often knew more about those fields than uh, well-established scholars wow. in those fields. And I'm actually, so, uh, I'm actually glad you touched on your, your personal connection with him because I did want to talk a bit about that. So was that yeah. ultimately the connection, your, your postdoc time? Did, did you have a friendship afterwards? I'm, I'm very curious to hear about that. We had, I mean, during that... Um, so I, my problem was that I was always worried that I wasn't saying something interesting enough. <laughs> I see. And, I, and and I think maybe that wasn't only on my part. Maybe maybe Nozick conveyed that to me, may, or maybe it may have been all my all in my own head. Um, so, um, um, but we had a friendship. Um, and for instance, there was a subsequent summer where my wife was at Harvard for the summer, and. Uh, he was writing his next big book, and once a week we would get together and sort of walk around Belmont, Massachusetts, right outside of Cambridge. Uh, the two of us would go for long walks and we talk about his next book. Uh, so that was that was nice. And uh, um, and then uh, there was this period of time where he was thought of as having disavowed libertarianism, and. Uh, um, when, it, when we would meet at philosophical meetings, sort of, I never brought that up, <laughs> which I think he liked, <laughs> right. uh, you know, I, you know, implicitly saying, you know, our friendship doesn't hinge on that. Uh, so we got along um, and he was, uh, uh, you know, he was, you know, for during the whole time I was job searching and so on, he was writing letters for me. So um yeah, but I didn't. I never became as friendly with him. Had the sort of connection that I probably should have worked harder at. Mm. Um, um, we hung out sometimes at meetings and so on. And, uh, um, but but probably I should have been uh, more active at uh, at working on the friendship. Uh, I don't know what his response to that exactly would have been. I wrote the. Um, um, I'm the author now of the of a very long article on his political philosophy that's in uh, the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, which is the big place to have such a thing. And um, um, I remember when I wrote that, which was already probably five years after he died, um, uh, thinking it was an, kind of an emotional thing for me to write that. I was really happy to have that uh, uh, opportunity. and. Uh, kind of wish that he still have had been able to read it uh, right so right. uh yeah cool. uh, thank thank you thank you very much for sharing that i think that adds such a dimension to the story and and why you're so passionate about the work but also it's nice to to hear that you also knew the man behind the words i find that very yeah. fascinating 
Um, just a couple of wrap-up questions here, and then I think we're kind of in the, in the final swing of our conversation. Um, so actually, so we'll go with this one first. So I, I really want to ask, not even necessarily for philosophical reasons, but just any any reason you can think of, whether it made you laugh or whatever, any yeah, anything yeah. you anything you'd like to chart it as. What would you say is one of your favorite chapters or sections of this book overall? Ooh, you know. Just, just in general, I'll say the book is very funny. <laughs> I mean, there are a lot of funny parts about the book. And also, I should mention that there are, are a lot of political philosophers who deeply disagree with Nozick, who will say, this is my favorite philosophy book. Hmm. Uh, and it's because of the sort of whimsicalness of parts of the book. Uh, or the he'll be going along and writing on one topic and all of a sudden there'll be some objection to the line of thought that he's developing and he'll state the objection. And so there's this sort of playfulness of the book. Uh, I, I, I'm, nothing is coming to mind as the one particular chapter. There's one uh, section of Chapter eight, which we haven't talked about, which is uh, where he's also looking at other cases for the state having expansive powers to bring about something like economic justice. And within that, there is about a 12 or 15 page discussion of Marxism, which is very, very insightful and probably I think probably the best the best short refutation of Marxism that has ever been written. Right. Uh, So, you know, you can just, oh, there it is. Right. And the book is full of those sorts of uh, um, things. Uh, um, But I can't think of any one chapter. So I would say, I think it's chapter two (laughs) where he actually does uh engages in the sort of revival of natural rights theory mm. which had been totally dismissed right uh and i think his arguments there are much more interesting than he's usually given credit for um so uh, uh that's one thing i would mention partly because it's not an official part of the book but it's there uh and this whole notion and there he uh there's an interesting question about um, why he was so interested in natural rights and presented his view in terms of natural rights, since the conventional story about what made him turn towards libertarianism was that he had read uh, Hayek and Friedman, right? So he'd read these economists who, if anything, were hostile to the idea of natural rights. So there's an unanswered question mm. about exactly why he started to frame the whole doctrine that he was going to present in terms of a, a natural rights theory. Right. And actually, I think so future future readers should uh, should uh, come up with an answer to that question. Right. And I, that actually tumbles nicely to the next thing I want to ask. I mean, we already touched on one major area of part one that, that you, you think uh, would need improvement or strengthening or, or a bit of tweaking if, if it was to make it right in your mind. Other than what we discussed previously, uh, 
Let's right. just say if Nozick were alive today and decided to revisit some of his arguments or sections in the book, maybe a new edition, whatever it is, and, yeah. he, and he asked you, Eric, what do you think deserves more attention or more strengthening? What, what are the kinds of things that come to your mind? Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we talked about uh, he's. This is chapter four of the book, which is the hardest part of the book. Uh, very, very complicated, and that's the chapter which ultimately leads to his saying. Um, Sometimes it's permissible to uh, infringe on other people's person or their their property um, as long as you compensate them for the infringement or the the interference. Uh, so uh, it's not just that um, uh, you should never interfere with people uh, or. Uh, you should only interfere with people when they are violating your rights or somebody else's rights. But there are these intermediary cases um, and where it's okay to interfere as long as compensation for any harm that you do is accompanies the interference. Um, well, that opens the door to a whole bunch of interesting questions. For instance, uh, it's a possible way of dealing with questions about certain types of paternalism, mm -hmm. right? Maybe one of the instances in which it's possible, it's legitimate to interfere, even though you don't have consent in advance, uh, but, you, but your interference has to compensate people if they're harmed, is these emergency situations where somebody's about to step in front of the bus, Right. You can't get their permission to pull them back, which you don't right. have time, right? Uh, so is it wrong to pull them back? No, because under those circumstances, it's okay to interfere as long as you compensate. And, of course, the compensation would be that you save the person's life. There are some questions about whether that opens the door to forcing people to pay taxes, hmm to support protective institutions on the grounds that there are all sorts of problems about getting people's consent to taxation. Right. Uh, these are collective action sorts of problems, right? So, in fact, I once asked those, were you anticipating dealing with those sorts of problems when you raise and you pointed out there's this special category of interferences where you're not protecting anybody's rights by interfering, mm. but it's okay if you compensate. Were you anticipating this as a way of dealing with various sorts of collective action problems? And he said, no, <laughs> he wasn't anticipating. So actually some of the things I've written are about uh, what – what possible stances are opened up if you have this intermediary sort of situation mm. where it's okay to interfere, but only under very special circumstances and only if you compensate. Uh, so that would be, you know, what, Bob, what do you think uh, uh, you would say if you explicitly address that, that issue, which is implicit in, uh, in your, in the hardest chapter of your book? Great. 
that actually about wraps up my questions here and we're, we're at the kind of final swing of our time here so i'm, I'm going to bring us to our formal wrap-up eric i'm i'm sure you i'm sure you're a, a little exhausted having so much conversation <laughs> anarchy stay in utopia but you bring so much energy to it so i'm, I'm really happy you spent all that time with us so let, let me it's my pleasure let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of the ultimate question so let me officially ask you so you have the last word our uh, our official last question here what do you hope are ultimately the main takeaways for someone listening to here on Anarchy State and Utopia? Or, or in other words, back to the top and how we started this whole thing, wh- why should someone read Anarchy State and Utopia? It gives people a very different perspective on a whole bunch of uh, sort of political theory, political philosophy questions. Um, and uh, just to say it as quickly as possible, it the perspective that it gives people is we have to think about the rightness and wrongness of different types of in, interactions between people. The way to proceed in political philosophy is not to try to think of the way the world ultimately should be, not to have a theory of what the ultimate common end that we all should be hoping for is. Mm-hmm. But in a way, a much more modest thing, which is what constitutes decent or acceptable interaction between individuals and work at understanding what sort of a society will arise if people abide by these basic moral norms in their interaction with one another uh, and uh, what the value of that will be in terms of freedom and what the value of that will be in terms of better outcomes than could be achieved if we had a government that was driving us all towards some alleged right social end. Mm. I think that's a great place to leave it. So, Eric Mack, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task. My pleasure. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine Elchidiak, and Eric Seging. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task. Thank you.